It's a blessing. That's a... So that's a reminder to the young ones that are here. Anyone can do this, right? Anyone can memorize Scripture. Praise God. Take your Bibles, if you would. Open up to the book of uh, Romans. What chapter, Dave? Nine. Okay. But we're going to start reading down at verse 19. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, so, Father, we just bow. We thank you for hearing the whole chapter read right into our hearing, Father. Lord, it's a wonderful picture of your sovereign work in the lives of your people. Lord, we're, we're grateful. Lord, we're encouraged. Uh, we pray that our spirits would be uplifted by such truth. But now, Lord, as we come to this passage, we pray, Lord, you would give us understanding. We're in a difficult area of understanding. We have pea-sized brains before an infinite and all-knowing God. So, Lord, open our understanding and our minds, but especially our wills to be receptive to the words you have for us as a church. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we're coming to that section of of Romans uh, 9, 10, 11. There's three chapters there. And these three chapters are going to just lead us right into chapter 12, which will be the application of all that we've seen up to this point in time. But what Paul wants to do is package up at the very end of 9, 10, and 11 an objection. And he wants to deal with that objection in some detail. It's going to take three chapters to, to address that objection. And we've already talked about it, but this is what it is. The objection that a hearer might be thinking at the time is, well, wait a minute, Paul. What about the Jews? What about Jewish unbelief? How, how do we explain that? There's covenant promises that have been made to Israel, and these covenant promises have been made, and what happened? God's people haven't, the covenant people don't seem to be responding. And so why is it? Have your promises failed, God? Is that the issue? Uh, what, and so this is the general objection that's being raised. We saw that when Paul opened up chapter 9, he, he began by taking us by the hand and wading us in, through the waters of the doctrine of sovereign election. In the first few verses of that chapter, we see that he kind of got our feet wet and we just kind of waded in a little bit. Each section we've looked at, we've gone a little bit deeper. And for example, remember when he opened up chapter 9, he said, uh, telling his Jewish listeners, I wish you were saved. I wish you were saved. 
His heart ached for their salvation, and they would not come. In fact, he speaks of having a heart full of anguish and, and uh, the fact that if it was even possible, I'd give up my salvation and give it to you so that you might come to, to know Christ and, and receive his eternal blessings. And then as we came to verse 6, we began to wade a little bit deeper into this doctrine of God's sovereign election. The reason why God's word has not failed is because of what? We don't properly understand who the true Israel really is. Not all the offspring of Abraham are Jews in the spiritual sense. Not all that belong to Israel are true Israel. But the spiritual seed, we're going to see those whom God has chosen within that, that subset, they are the true seed. They're the spiritual seed. And we see that the promise of, uh, of God uh, was being manifest, for example, through Abraham. And we saw how Abraham had eight, eight sons. And of the eight sons, how many did God choose that we know of in Scripture? One. What was his name? Isaac. And so you have Ishmael and you have the other sons, six sons that were born. No mention of them being chosen by God. And then you come to Isaac himself, and Isaac, of course, was married to Rebekah, and, and Isaac and Rebekah had twins, and so now he, here's a more difficult passage to understand, God's sovereign election, born about the same time. You have Jacob and Esau, and yet the twins, uh, of the twins, before they were born, before they did anything bad or good, God chose who? Jacob, who I loved. Esau have I hated. So we're getting a little bit deeper into the waters of sovereign election here. And as, as the waters come up, it's causing us to, to be thinking and to be applying and be wondering, how, how does this apply to me and what does this really mean? Now when we come to verse 14, we see the waters getting deeper and uh, we see that it's not of human will or exertion that, that brings salvation, but it's God that shows mercy. And today, as the depth of this doctrine of election is probably right up to our eyeballs, we're going to be asking ourselves, what does this mean? God has sovereignly chooses a people before the foundation of the world, before they've done evil or bad. How is it that God could, could, could show mercy on one and bring a judgment upon another? In fact, we're going to see that if the water is right up to here, for those of you who are wondering about this doctrine, you might be having some objections coming in your own mind. Because what the Bible is saying, if anyone comes to heaven, it's going to be because of God and God alone. If any have their sins forgiven, it's going to be because it's God who did the work to forgive. So grace takes salvation out of the hands of men and puts it in the hands of God alone. And it's amazing that many today want to say amen to the doctrine of grace. We say, yes, we're saved by what? We're saved by grace. But then when you see God being a God of sovereign grace, well, I don't know about that kind of grace. But that's the grace that's revealed in Scripture. In fact, this is one of those doctrines as you begin to listen and hear, and, and now as it gets this point right up here to you, and you're going, I, I don't know about this doctrine of, of sovereign election. Uh, 
In fact, there's many who are contentious towards this doctrine. They chafe at a God who is sovereign over all, including choosing whom he would save. Because this doctrine rips away any inkling of uh, free will. And that's something we all want to hold on to as strong as we can, our free will. And we're going to see that it argues against the God who chose us to save us before the foundation of the world or to pass over us. This is one of the most hated doctrines in all of the Bible. Do you realize that? I mean, this isn't one where you just preach sovereign grace and you begin to preach a sovereign election. Everyone goes, wow, that's great, I accept that. Now, some of you accepted that simply when you first heard and you believed. And that's how I was. I know when I was a young lawyer and working through some of these things as a brand new Christian, we had a, we had a, a babysitter that came and was looking at caring for Stephen at that time. And she walked into the front of my living room. She says, you like to read, don't you? I said, I love to read. And she says, well, here's a little book that I thought she might like to read called The Five Points of Calvinism. And I remember reading through that little booklet, you know, just probably in a day. And yeah, that's right. I mean, that's just what I believe. That's what I understood. But not everyone receives these doctrines that way. Some people, when they hear them the first time, they chafe at them. What do you mean God is sovereign? What do you mean God chooses one? What do you mean God would not choose others and leave them to destruction? I think Spurgeon was right when he said, men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the world and make stars. They will allow him to be in the uh, Almerni to dispense his alms, bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne... His creatures begin to gnash their teeth. And we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to be as he wills with his own to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that that we are hissed, extricated, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is the God upon his throne whom we trust in. Now, Paul knew there would be some objection of his readers. Uh, they knew that he, he knew they'd be struggling over this doctrine of sovereign election. You know, if you were here today wrestling with the doctrine of election, that might be some of you. You know, you've come back, I think, I'm glad you came back a second and a third time as we've been going through Romans chapter 9. But if God brought you here and you're wrestling with this doctrine, I pray for you today that the passage we're going to be looking at will answer some of your objections and help you see a God who is sovereign over all and that you will bow your knee to him and worship him and trust in him. If any of you are having trouble embracing the doctrine of election, remember who wrote chapter 9 of Romans. This is God speaking. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't Paul's idea. Hey, I got a good idea. How about this? This is God speaking to us of who he is and how we respond to Romans 
chapter 9 is a good response of how we respond to God directly himself. God has fully revealed the truth. He's answered every anticipated objection that somebody might raise. Uh, There's no lack of clarity. I I don't see any lack of clarity in Romans chapter 9. And what I see, if anything, is the heart's unwillingness to simply believe it and respond with a heart of belief. If any lack of willingness to embrace it, may God open our tiny pea-sized brains today to grasp and greatly understand in our, our infinite God that we may be led in, in our heart to delight in Him and who He is. May any here today without Christ be drawn to such an infinite and majestic God. Now here's the anticipated objection that he's going to be dealing with in the passage I just read. If God hardens whom he hardens, we saw that last week, right? He, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and relating to Pharaoh, he hardens whom he hardens. So he's thinking there, there's going to be someone reading this or sitting here in, in, in our chairs in Cody, Wyoming, hearing this and thinking this. Well, wait a minute, Paul. How can that be? If God is hardening people's hearts, how can he then judge those people and pass over them and leave them to their own destruction? How can he do such a thing? How could God judge a person whose heart he has hardened? And that's, that's, that's the question we're going to be looking at in this passage. In fact, that's what he raises in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And he says, you will say to me then, and he's jumping into the heads of those people who might be raising objections. Uh, he can hear someone say, stop, Paul, I, want, I got a question. And, and to paraphrase the objection again is, if God has willed with a determinate, unchangeable will that certain hearts will be hardened against him, and that's done judicially, how can God find any fault in a person who, doesn't, who, who finds themselves in that position? If God hardens a heart, how can he blame those who have hard hearts, since it's God who gave them the hard heart? Why does he still find fault? This, by the way, is the same argument we commonly hear today. It's not a new argument. Uh, we, we, we probably word it a little bit differently than Paul does. But it goes something like this. You know, after all, if it's God who chose the people, even before they were born, if it is God who called a, per, a people, if it is God who gave them faith and regenerated them, if it's God who, who, who justified and will glorify them, he's done it all. If it is God who chose not to save some and, and, and only save the rest of mankind, how can God judge and condemn those whom he has not willed to be saved? You know, by the way, whenever there's an attack on the sovereignty of God, usually behind that attack, there is an attack on God himself. There's an attack on his attributes and who he is. Uh, right here we've seen, for example, that uh, most objections to the doctrine of election have had an underlying attack on who God is in his attributes. 
we saw already one of the one of the one of the objections had to do well God you're not fair attacking his fairness this this attack attacks his righteousness if you make people hard well, how can you righteously judge that person and then just send them off into eternity without choosing them for salvation and this usually results from the twisting of doctrines so that it makes God the one who's violating his own attributes. At the very heart of this objection is a twisting of the Bible itself. The twist is that the objection makes it sound like mankind entered into this world with kind of a, a whiteboard, clean slate, and, and it has basically not responsible for any sin. And if there's any sin, it's because God has done what? He's hardened them. And that usually comes from someone who hasn't read the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We spent a lot of time, if you were here with us, in the first three chapters, learning that what? We've all, we've all sinned. Uh, there's none righteous. And we saw that uh, not only are, are we guilty for our sin, sin's universal, but we also see that uh, sin brought condemnation to all of mankind. So there is no white board. So where do they get off in their reasoning? They, they oftentimes forget about the total depravity that's found in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of depravity, the condemnation of mankind. And, uh, and they, want to, they want to attack the holiness of God and say, God, you must be an, uh, an unholy God to harden the heart of such people who don't know any sin. But on the contrary, we saw last time, if you remember, that... Uh, that man was, was born in the garden with a free agency to choose to, to, to obey or disobey God. And mankind under Adam fell. And not only did mankind fall, all that, that are in Adam, that's all of us, we fell from birth. And not only that, on top of that, as soon as we were able, we, we began right away doing what? Breaking the very law of God and disobeying Him. So Romans 3 could say in 23, all have sinned. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. And so what we saw, this hardening of God, is the fact that with Pharaoh, Pharaoh was hardening his own heart, wasn't he? He was sinning against God. And then what God was doing is pulling back his restraining hands of grace and letting him go all the way. And in effect, hardening his heart that he was hardening himself. And so the fault is in man's sinful rebellion. The fault isn't in God. So that's the objection. If God hardens hearts, how can he fairly judge those whose heart he has hardened? And here's Paul's answer. And you might be surprised at his answer in verse 20. So far, whenever an objection's been raised, he's been patiently giving an answer and, and addressing the objection. You know what he's doing here? He's now given all the answers he's going to give, and now he's going to rebuke those who come to him with this objection, having told them all that he has already told them. Uh, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, that's a sharp rebuke. Uh, Paul is, is not rebuking the hearer for their sincerity. He's not rebuking the hearer because they had some questions they don't quite understand. Rather, he's rebuking them because of their heart. And their heart is one that's not teachable. 
and their heart is one that, that is accusing and contentious. And that's the heart he's going after. And he says, who are you, O man? And there's an emphasis on the O man. I mean, after all, consider who you are. If you're going to raise such objections, stop and think who you are. You're a man. Who are you accusing? God himself. You're a mere man and finite and ignorant and proud. And you're making attacks against God, who is a sovereign God. And then we see the answer, the explanation of God's sovereignty here. And he goes on. What 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 is the mold to say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? I mean, we are the molded. So what 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 can we say to the one who molded us, shaped us, made us into what we are? That's why many irreverently deny God's sovereignty. Uh, over the souls of men, at the heart of such objection is really a, a faulty understanding and a proper relationship that they have with God and who God is. A failure to understand that we are nothing more than created beings. That's who you are. That's who I am. We've been formed into, into a lump of clay. If you read back in Genesis at creation, dirt was picked up. We see that uh, life was breathed in, in, into Adam. And yet we've puffed ourselves up into thinking we are much, much more than that. And pride keeps us from seeing the supremacy of God. We're dirt, dirt that breathes, dirt that's dirty, dirt that's sinful. And we've been formed by the hands of God. The Almighty God is free to do with you, and the Almighty God is free to do with me whatever He pleases. It's his terms and under his conditions. I think many are under the illusion that uh, God is under some kind of a constraint to conform to what we think he should be like. Uh, It's a failure to realize that we're the fallen creatures and he's God. You know, we laugh at a dinosaur like a brontosaurus that uh, they, they guess is about 110 feet long. And based on the, the skull, they said the brain is about the size of a tennis ball. So here you have this huge creature with a tiny little brain. And we forget that that's who we really are. A created being, not as anywhere near the size of a brontosaurus, but with a small little pea brain, trying to understand and figure out and bring judgment upon God of who he is. We have to be careful here, brethren, that, we, that we, we don't attribute to God what we think God should be like, but instead attribute to God to how he reveals himself. You know, in David Hunt's book, What Love Is This?, uh, in this book he brought an attack on the very doctrines that we're looking at in chapter 9, attacking that God obviously cannot elect or choose a people to save Because to do so would be, according to David Hunt, unloving. An unloving thing for God to do. What's the problem? That sounds right, doesn't it? It has a ring to it. God is unloving. Why would he choose one and not choose another? Well, it's because what David Hunt was doing is what many of us are tempted to do, and that is to have our own definition 
of who God is and what he's like, our own definition of love, and then impose that definition on God. And if he doesn't act that way, say we disagree with how he reveals himself in Scripture. Demanding that God somehow would conform to his own faulty understanding of divine love. I know he goes on in his book, he reasons that divine love can't be discriminatory. Divine love has to be egalitarian. Because that's what love is, according to Dave Hunt. Somehow to Dave Hunt, it's more, more loving for God to beg and plead with people to come to his son and be saved than it is for himself as an act of love to actually go and save a sinner. See, love must be defined by whom? God. Not us. Not our human understanding of what love is, but how God defines love. And when he defines himself as I am love, then whatever he, however he reveals himself, including Romans 9, that has to be our understanding of what divine love is. There's a sovereign element to it. So here in the ninth chapter, uh, defining love, it's, it's sovereign love. It is a discriminatory love in a true sense, in a perfect sense. It's a love where God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. It's a love where he will harden those whom he hardens. And then he gives us the familiar illustration here in verse 21 that that we just sang about. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And by the way, he's, he's arguing from the experience of the Romans that he's writing to you know, down in the Agora, they would have a little, a little marketplace. They would have a, a place where you could just, uh, you would see the artisans making things and making pots and out of clay, turning them on a wheel. So the, these were, this was familiar imagery for, for the Roman. But it was also scriptural. And this is what I want you to see. Paul is not only arguing from their experience, he's arguing from the Word of God to support the Word of God, to argue for the Word of God. There's at least four or five, there might be five instances in, in the Old Testament where the same imagery is given to us about God and His created beings. Let me give you a couple of them. Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, as the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? See, the same imagery. This would have been very familiar to the Jews. 45.9 of Isaiah. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among the earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? Isaiah 64.8. But now, O Lord, you are the Father who are, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we all... And we are all the work of your hand. So there's that same imagery given to us through the Old Testament. That's why any any reader that would have walked through the Agora and and went through the marketplace and saw the shops of the artisans would have seen potters sitting there grabbing the wet clay and and maybe molding it together and putting it on on the the lump on, on, on the wheel and then turning the wheel and making pots out of it. This was was familiar with them. He would take the clay and mix it with water and make this lump 
And out of the lump, he would grab a handful and put it on the wheel and form a, a pot. And from the same lump, this is the imagery here, from the same lump, he would make different kinds of pots. From the same lump, he, he would make a pot that would be what? Honorable. From the same lump, he might choose to make a, a pot that's dishonorable. So he could, from the pot, he could, from the lump, he could make a pot that's beautiful. This piece of art that you could put on the shelf, you would carry very carefully because it's precious. It'd be a pot that you might use for putting your fruit in and putting it on display or putting your main dish into this pot and, and putting it out before your guests. But if he wanted to, he could take the same lump and from that lump form it into a, a dishonorable pot. And a dishonorable pot might be a pot that would be used for things like a chamber pot. This is before they had indoor plumbing. You know, you'd have a chamber pot by the bed, and there's no indoor plumbing. And so rather than getting up, you've got the chamber pot there. At the end of the day, that night, you had to take it out and dump the chamber pot. Came out of, came from a potter. I mean, if you're during the cowboy days, you had uh, you had spittoons. That would be a dishonorable pot, and so they might make it. And what's the purpose of this pot? Well, it's to put in the corner and spit my chewing tobacco into it. Well, that's really nice. But the potter can do that if he wants, right? If he wants a pot of dishonor. Uh, Typically, in the Roman uh, culture, they would actually have a pot they throw all their garbage in. And so all their filthy garbage they'd take out at the end of the meal and then haul it out and throw it outside from that pot. That's the imagery of a, of a pot of dishonor. So God has the, the power, like the potter, to reach back on the same lump, the same fallen group of humanity, and pull it out and take one handful and make a pot of honor. And he can go back into the same fallen humanity and make one of dishonor. The point is, God's the potter. We are the clay. He can grab from the same lump and make one of us, or many of us, uh, honors of mercy, places of mercy, or people who are places of wrath. And he's asking the question, doesn't the potter have a right to do this if he wants Literally, has the potter no right? It says here in the ESV. Uh, some of your translations might say, doesn't he have authority to do this? Isn't he the potter? I mean, the potter not only has the power and the authority, I mean, he, he, he does what he wants. By definition, he does what he pleases. And, and the pot has no, no right or authority to look back at, 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 at the potterer and say, what are you doing to me? You have no right to do that. No, be quiet. You're the pot. I'm the potter. And so you stop and ask those of you who might strongly object to this doctrine of sovereign election. How do you answer? How do you answer Paul's question that we just looked at in 21? If you're here today and you're struggling with this doctrine of God's sovereign election, how are you going to answer God who says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for 
honorable use and another for dishonorable use. How are you going to answer that question? I mean, do you agree that the potter has a right to do what he wants with the clay? Do you agree that God is the potter here? That's the illustration. Do you agree that the clay has no power in and of itself? Do you agree that the, 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 the clay is really cold and lifeless, thoughtless and emotionless? Do you agree that it lacks the ability to somehow um, question the potter's motives in, in why he does what he does? Do you agree that the potter with his power and creative intellect has the authority to design one a, a vessel of honor and one of dishonor? I don't think there's a person here today who would argue that the potter doesn't have the authority to do what he wants with the clay that he is, he is using. If he had the power to make a vessel unto a beautiful museum piece, and he also had the power to grab from that same lump of unredeemed humanity and turn it into a vile garbage bowl, he has the right to do that. He is God. Wait a minute. He said, what, what about God? Doesn't he even more have the authority than a potter to do as he wants? Isn't he the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things? Isn't he rule over all that he's made? You know, when Mary and I uh, were over in, I went over in Scotland and uh, Pastor Seaton picked us up at the airport and he said, uh, what do you think of our mountains? And I, I looked and I looked on the horizon, I'm looking for some mountains. <laughs> I mean, we, I don't even know if we'd call them hills here in Wyoming. They're just little, you know, little mounds. Over there, he says, you see them, don't you? You see them? Our mountains. I said, well, I see the hills. I said, we're from Wyoming. We're, we're at the base of the Rocky Mountains. Tower, you know, 12, 14,000 feet in the air. Those are mountains. And I was thinking about that this last week. I mean, what right do the hills of Scotland <laughs> have to look at our Rocky Mountains here in Cody, Wyoming, and say... Well, why aren't we like those mountains? Who are you, God? You have, those hills have no right to say anything. True, God can make hills, God can make mountains, and His creation can't argue back with Him. Why did you do with us what you did? We are a people formed out of dirt. But unlike the hills of Scotland, we're even worse than dirt. We are sinful dirt. We are living creatures that stand in rebellion against the very God who made us. We're living lumps of clay that, that have broken the law of God. We're facing His eternal wrath. We deserve His judgment. And so I encourage you, look around this room. Look at each other in the face and what do you see? I mean, we're all created beings of God. There's people here, young, old, all of us have been wonderfully fashioned in different shapes and sizes and color of hair. 
But we have one thing in common. There's one thing that unites every one of us together. We were born sinners. Our vital union to, to Adam from birth. We, we came into this life as rebellious sinners. And there's another thing we have in common. That is, as soon as we were able to, we rebelled against God. We disobeyed God. And every one of us in this room are sinners, not only by birth, but by choice. And we all are under the curse and the wrath of Almighty God. That's what we have in common. Now that if God should choose in His mercy and love and kindness and wisdom to reach down to a lump like us and pluck and save the objects of His his mercy, some. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You say, well, what about the rest? Is it fair to them? They're sinners. We're all sinners. And the very fact that they continue to reject God, they continue to rebel against God, they continue to refuse to repent, hardens their heart that much more for that day of ultimate judgment. So God is righteous. We all have one thing in common. We're all sinners in need of a salvation. But if there's, a, if there's a potter, and there is, his name is God, to rescue one of us, some of us, even all of us in this room, he's free to do so because he's God. He can fashion us however he wants to for eternity. He, we'd have, he'd have mercy on whom he'd have mercy, and he'd have hardness on those whom he hardens. And you have no right to question that, and I have no right to question that. And so if you're here without Christ, still in your sins, guilty before God, what I want you to see from this passage is our God is a very merciful God. He is a God who delights in saving sinners. And so then it comes to each one of us individually then to look to that God and to consider all that Christ has done on the behalf of sinners in purchasing for many everlasting life. And we're going to see that there's a call that goes out to you to believe and to trust and to receive and repent of your sin and receive the very forgiveness and gift of everlasting life. Can you think of any more humbling doctrine than this? I mean, think about it. None of us want to casually accept the reality that we had nothing to do with our salvation. And there's something in every one of us you want to, I want to do something. I want to please God. I want Him to be happy with me. But can you think of anything more humbling than saying you can't? None of us want to casually accept the reality that... uh, that we're nothing more than a lump of clay, that just rubs against every one of us. We all have independent natures. We all want to do our own thing. We all want to try and do something to please God. But this is exactly how God saved you, Christians. This is how He saves us. He did it. He chose before the foundation of the world. Then in time and space, He sent forth His Son. And then in time and space, he what? He called those he chose after predestining them and just, then justifying and giving them ultimate glory. And he did so as a gift. It's all of grace. That's why he adds here, not of him that willeth, 
That's not the way. It's not of him that runneth. It's not by your, your effort. But it's God that shows mercy. Now, let's, let's ask a question. Why would God do this? Why would God save some and then pass over others? I mean, is there some sadistic bent in God that would do such a thing? And the answer has to be absolutely what? No. Thank you. No. Absolutely not. But there is a lofty and glorious purpose in what God has done. There's a reasoning behind it. And we see that in, in, in this passage. There's a, there's a God-glorifying end to all that God has done. And what he does is he, he lists three attributes that are displayed by God as he chooses one and, cho- and chooses not to choose another. And these three attributes bring forth before all of mankind his glory. And so his glory is on display. Verse 23, excuse me, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with such much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, what if? Here's his motive. What if God chooses to show forth his wrath? his divine displeasure, his anger against sinners. And he's chosen to do so by what? By not saving all, but leaving some to their own sin and destruction. He does so for his own glory's sake. If only one of his attributes were put on display in salvation, that would be wonderful. But you know what God, for all of his glory's sake, says, I'm not going to just... Put one of my attributes on display. I'm going to put more than that. I'm going to put grace on display, love on display, wrath on display. If it was just grace without justice, it would be a perverted view of God. It wouldn't be who He truly is. He hardens whom He hardens. The wrath is God's divine displeasure and against sin. God's justice will be vindicated, not just by wrath, but he also adds by his power. Second attribute. When God passes over a sinner and chooses not to save them, but to harden their heart and to make known his power, he's displaying his power at that time. He does so by the destruction of the wicked. I know that, uh, just think of the power of Almighty God fueling the fires of hell forever. That's power. Think about the power of God that when judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and you have fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. That's power on display. Well, if you have God who uh, not only fuels the fires of, of hell, but also floods the earth and wipes out every living creature except those whom he called to be in the ark. That's a power of God. And his power is being displayed through his wrath. And notice he has, and has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is, God is displaying his wrath and his power to those whom he's hardening. But he's doing so with patience and long-suffering. Not necessarily for their good, but ultimately for his own glory. And those whom these attributes are directed towards, 
Those vessels of wrath are for those who have been prepared for destruction. Now, we know from last week that the passage, uh, uh, the answer is really correct. Now, not only is he displaying his attributes to those who are unsaved, but those whom he chooses as well. Uh, to all within the sound of my hearing this morning, all of you today who are here without the Lord Jesus Christ, these two attributes should haunt you. They should haunt you. And God might even choose to use those two attributes as you fully see them to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. And when you think of God's power and you think of God's wrath being, being the eternal recipient of that powerful wrath should put everyone and every one of us in a state of fear to make sure that by God's grace we're not the object of that wrath and object of that power forever. There's a third attribute here, and that's the attribute that's displayed when he, when he shows mercy on those whom he shows mercy. Verse 23, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Oh, how God wonderfully displays His glorious love and grace when He chooses one to be saved. It's a wonderful display. Uh, when God chooses before the foundations of the world to save one lost sinner, and then in the space of time, He, he then sends His Son into this world, and then as He sends His Son into the world to pour His own wrath upon His own Son, that all that might come to trust and believe in Him and Him alone might receive the very blessing of forgiveness and everlasting life and the wrath that, that the sinner deserves was already put on His Son. And now that, that that sinner stands righteous before God. That's why He says they're displaying the riches of His glory. This is wonderful. Look at verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Most of us get in right here, right? Not to the Jews only, but the Gentiles. That's you, that's me. He's calling out a people from the nations of the world to be the recipients of his mercy and to display his glory and for, his, for eternal praise forever and ever. Now think about it. We're here today, worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Most of you are. And you are a trophy of God's grace. Being here today as a true child of God, you are a trophy. You're a vessel of honor that God has actually created for all eternity, with everlasting life, with forgiveness of sins. And as a trophy of glory, God has made you a vessel to glorify Him. Why are we here today to glorify God? Why are we here today so that we might lift up our voices, we might praise Him and sing glorious praise to Him for all that He's done, not only for choosing us before the foundation of the world, but through His very Son saving us. 
Verse 24, even us whom he has called also the Gentiles. This passage is rich in application. I just want to draw a couple out before we close our Bibles because it brings a message to us today. We've seen the sovereignty of God and the salvation of mankind is, is one that radiates the very glory of God. Now that tells me that election is important. If the reason why God chooses one and then hardens another, you might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, Don, I, that's what you think. That's what you believe, but I don't believe that. Maybe we can agree to disagree on that one. Okay. But what this passage tells me is the reason why God chose some, why God hardened others, is for His glory's sake. And so it no longer becomes a a small matter. It really no longer becomes something that uh, is no big deal. To not believe in election, to not believe in God's sovereign choosing of those whom He's going to save is a big deal. God's glory is at stake. It's the way that the fullness of God and all of His mercy and all of His wrath is put on display. And I'll tell you this, if you hold to a gospel that puts man at the forefront, you preach a gospel, you embrace a gospel that robs God of His glory. A gospel that has a it's passive, a God who's passive. Present a God that pleads with mankind, begs with them to come to Christ, rather than reaching down and in sovereign love saving them, detracts from his glory. You know, if you're embracing that the fickle free will of man and you think that that's just everything to you, then you're you're failing to see the glory of, of God Himself who chooses as He chooses as the potter chooses to make something and someone a lump of glory. So what happens is this. A weak understanding of the doctrine of election, you rob God of His glory. Where is His wrath? Where is His power? Where is His sovereignty? Where is His grace? Where is His love? Where are the riches of His glory? And so if our knowledge of God is imperfect, then we're going to be worshiping an imperfect God. We're going to have imperfect worship. So let us then humble ourselves. Bow down before the God. Uh, We might put our face in the dust before such a great and glorious God who is absolutely sovereign to do as He pleases with us. You know, I must confess that I, I, I don't fully comprehend the doctrine of election. I mean, I, I'll sit and talk with you all day long and we can talk theology, but when it comes right down to it, I mean, it, it is a, it's a wonderful doctrine that none of us fully will understand. Maybe in eternity we will. But I'll say this, it's clearly taught. It's not foggy in Scripture. The fact that I can't fully understand it doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, it's clear when objections are raised, Paul answers those objections. And when he finally stops answering the objections, he says, wait a minute. God is the what? Potter. You're the clay. What right have you, O man, to question God? When he speaks, 
listen. And may you hear his words as he describes himself. That's salvation. And when he places us where we ought to be, praise the Lord. If we find ourselves prostrate in the dust, that means he's taken the darkness off our eyes. He's given us lively understanding to be able to comprehend who he is and to humbly worship him. And so as we sang earlier, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You're the potter, and I'm the what? The clay. So mold me and make me after thy will while I'm waiting and yield it and still. So, Father, we close there. It's uh, quite, a, quite a rebuke that the Apostle brings to all of us. Just a reminder of our true relationship to you as our sovereign creator, God. Lord, I pray in our hearts that you would cause us to see ourselves as lumps of clay. Oh yes, if we're saved, we've been redeemed, we're created in the image of Christ, but how do we get there? As lumps of clay. And God, it was in your kindness, it was in your sovereignty, it was in your divine purpose and plan that you reached out and grabbed that lump of clay that was fallen human nature and you shaped it into the image of one who has been forgiven, one of your children. We thank you and praise you for that. Oh, Lord, uh, may we not be so focused on your working that we fail to see our response to such a great and glorious God. Lord, there's great encouragement that comes to us as believers knowing that our assurance, our hope, is based on the fact that you chose us. Lord, we'd be in great danger if we strolled into your presence and somehow saved ourselves because that means we could walk away. We believe we're in the sovereign grip of a holy God who who has saved us and chose us before the foundation of the world and therefore we will never be lost. And for that we praise you and find encouragement. Oh Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's heart is is troubled. Lord, they're still in their sin. They have yet to trust in you as Savior and Lord. Lord, would you open their mind and give them understanding? Even by your power, may your, your regenerate spirit bring life to their hearts so they can see the beauty of Christ and come to him. They might have faith and you would grace them with faith to believe that you would give them a heart to leave behind the sins that mar their life and to follow Christ in all of his holiness. Oh, Lord, save anyone without the Lord. Save the lost sinner. Father, this is a difficult doctrine. Lord, it's one that we look at with humility and one that we don't want to proudly say, oh, we believe this and they can't and we do. And Oh, Lord, forgive us if that's our heart. Lord, may we as humble recipients of this understanding realize not only did you humbly save us and sovereignly save us, but your Spirit gave us the understanding. So we thank you for that. Lord, it's, uh, it's, it's a great Lord's Day. We're here as redeemed people. We've been fashioned, Lord, into be instruments of, of mercy. And now, Lord, I pray you would continue to stir our hearts to be infinite. Uh, 
instruments of praise to you, you and your Son for your glory's sake. In Christ's name, amen.